Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. There's an outrage that happened in L.A. this past weekend, which is really cracking me up. I watched the Channel 5 news, and the news person, she wore a cocktail dress. Her name's Liberty Chen. And she started getting, like, hate mail. And I'm thinking, have you people, have you watched what other of these weather girls wear? They're, like, half naked. And this girl wore nothing revealing at all. And people are just bitching at her. And it just makes me laugh that people can just go after someone on Twitter and bitch when all she was doing was the weather. And the funny thing is, do we really watch the weather? Because we know it's almost always sunny. So it's like you sit there, you watch it. They keep saying it's going to be sunny. So anyway, that was griping me. And I'll tell you what's not griping me, my... uh, my guest today, who he's been uh, he's been working constantly since 1990, quite a career. I guess is Abraham, Abraham Ben Ruby. How you doing, Abraham? I'm good, Steve. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. So, uh, so I read I read that you went to Letterman's High School. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, David Letterman is from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, we both uh, not at the same time, but we both attended Broderpool High School. Now, now you you're a tall. You're, you're what six seven. Six, seven. So now, how have you always been? I mean, I'm, I'm going to find out how you got in this career to acting, especially growing up in the Midwest, being that size. It seems like there'd be a good big sports poll for you. Uh, yeah, there was definitely uh, the coaches all tried to get me for sure. Um, uh, yeah, I've been six, seven since uh, like eighth grade. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And uh, <laughs> uh, I actually started acting at the Indianapolis Civic Theater, taking classes. Uh, eight or nine years old uh, and doing theater there and then Broderpool High School actually had a pretty strong performing arts program and so we did a lot of shows there and uh, had a lot of drama classes Um, they tried to get me for football and basketball and I did wind up going out for the football team one day uh, and it was a a day uh, where we were ramming into the sled which is like a steel frame with a thin pad on it and so I'm ramming my body into this basically metal wall with a coach yelling at me furiously, hit it harder, hit it harder. And I stood up, took the pads off and walked away and never talked to any of the coaches again. <laughs> That's funny. Well, they must have been like, oh, my God, the biggest kid. And he's like, screw you guys. Um, yeah. What? Yeah, I've had to, not much for that kind of uh, physical violence. What, um, what made you... Th- Get into acting at such a young age, though. Was it? I mean, were you a funny? I mean, eight is eight is a young age, and you know, we we all we do whatever when we're five or six. But to get on and actually go into get into theater, I mean, what gr- made you gravitate towards that? Um, well, I had grown up, you know, pretending to be Spider Man in my grandmother's basement, hanging from the pipes and Bilbo Baggins and Captain Kirk. I was a big uh, sci-fi comic book geek and uh, as a child, and that's kind of how I learned to read. And um, So I was always sort of pretending to be uh, these fictional characters. And, and uh, I played Santa Claus in the, like the third grade school play, and the woman who was the teacher slash director of that uh, told my mom I should go to the Civic Theater, and so I started taking classes there. And the first thing I ever learned, the first piece of text that I ever memorized was the Jabberwocky uh, by Lewis Carroll. And uh, I remember that just felt really heroic and strange. And, and that's that's how I got into it. So, yeah. So you go through high school, you have a good you have a good acting program at your high school. You're learning your craft. 
when you graduate high school, what is your direction? And did you know that this is going to be your career? <laughs> no, I was a pretty poor uh, student. I'm going to be honest. I uh, didn't find my way to all the classes that uh, <laughs> were, were meant to be found. Um, but I, uh, after high school, I, I made a, uh, a, an after-school special, basically, uh, that was cast locally in Indianapolis called uh, Private Victories, which, uh, God forbid you look it up on the web, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, uh, but it was like an anti-drug, you know, PSA, basically. Um, and then a film came from Hollywood to, to shoot in Indianapolis because we had an Olympic uh, natatorium, which is a diving pool um, for platform diving, and they were watching Private Victories uh, looking for to cast a young woman as the ingenue or something like that, and so they saw me, and there was a small part for the the, the bad guy's henchman, and uh, so I got to audition for that. It was like three lines or something, and and you got yeah. it. You were Rick and, and diving it. in. Yeah, diving in exactly right, and uh, they wrote me into the rest of the movie. And the director of that, a guy named Strath Hamilton, uh, was really supportive and recommended I come to Hollywood. He introduced me to his agents and I've been with them my whole career. Wow. So this one, I mean, it's just, you know, you hear different stories and that's one of those things where, yeah, you, you don't, you don't think you're going to be found in Indiana. <laughs> no. Uh, and I honestly never even imagined that it was possible. I mean, that was at that time, there was a vast gulf between regular life and movie stars. So, uh, yeah, it was beyond a dream. It wasn't even in my my purview. Well, when you moved out here, what did you ever think that your height, and as we've seen, it hasn't because you've constantly worked, but did you think that your height may be a little bit of a uh, obstacle just because, you know, I mean, you're in the business. I interview people. I, you know, we know there's a lot of actors who are like five, seven, you know what I mean? <laughs> there's a lot of small guys. And for you being six, seven, it must intimidate the crap out of some of these actors. I mean, did you think this might be an obstacle or were you just like, if I'm good, it won't make a difference. Uh, you know, I kind of never thought about it that way. I, I, I don't. I try not to overanalyze things like that. I just kind of go after whatever's happening, and uh, I feel like that's been with me the whole time. So I, I wasn't really concerned about being tall. I will say that it was a distinct advantage in the early days because there weren't very many uh, big guys, and I would I would see basically the same ten or twelve guys at every audition. Um, and, uh, you know, some of, uh, some of them, I got the job and some of the other fellows got the job. So you move out. I always ask my guests when you first moved out, where did you first live in, in, in the Hollywood <laughs> LA area? Cause everyone, it's changed so much. I mean, I lived, I remember I lived like 15 years ago. I lived in this studio right behind sunset and Highland and my rent was three seventy five. But now that probably, they probably haven't upgraded it in 15 years. It's probably like 1500 now. That's funny. I live almost right there right now. Um, when I first moved out here, I lived in uh, what, what they've come to call NoHo, okay. which is North Hollywood. <laughs> I live in Burbank. I'm, I'm NoHo adjacent. <laughs> yeah, NoHo adjacent. And man, it was ghetto. It was like there was nothing even remotely resembling art at that time. And now it's kind of a thriving arts district. Um, but yeah, it was like fast food and porn shops. And uh, maybe there was one crummy club, comedy club there. I think that's still there. They're probably not crummy anymore. Um, <clears throat> but it's been really interesting to see all the advancements and the, and the development come up in Los Angeles, kind of all over town, really. Oh, it did. It's, it's booming right now. There's so many 
skyscrapers under construction in Hollywood. It's bananas. Oh, yeah. Well, I live in Burbank, and they're tearing down the big IKEA to make the country's biggest IKEA. And then they're going to put shops, and I'm like, we don't need a new IKEA. You know, it's like, it's like I mean, I, I, it's just, I'm like, oh, we're going to put it right near the freeway, which is perfect for the traffic. But so, I wonder I wonder if they're having as much trouble putting together the new Ikea shop yeah. as we putting together their products. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They got, they run all those ratchet wrenches and they're going, oh shit, what can we do? Yeah, giant ratchet wrenches. Um, so, okay, so, so you're out here and... You have that movie credit, but then you start going out on you get on some sitcoms. I mean, how did how did that come? Because I know you were on Roseanne, and you you know, and you were married with children. Yeah, my uh, my agent's a fellow named uh, Scott Manners. He's the he's the head of the beast there, and he uh, he, he took a liking to me, and so I was kind of thrown at every opportunity that there was, big guy or not. And actually, the very first thing I was cast on, you know, Twitter is amazing because people. Can, or the internet's amazing. You can dig up anything, and then people can reach you. Uh, and so there was a show called Living Dolls, um, starring a, a very young and very beautiful Halle Berry. Uh, and that was the very first thing I was cast on here in Los Angeles. Uh, it was a it was a sitcom. Uh, I'm sure you can dig that up out there somewhere. Isn't it amazing? It's like you sit yeah. there. I mean, I'm looking through your you know your re- resume. I'm like, okay, I gotta check this out because I do that a lot. Like. I'll find out if a guest has been on Miami Vice. I love Miami Vice. And I'll sit there and I'll Google their episode and, and you can find it and you go to Netflix and you play it and you go, hey, this is so easy now. Yeah, pretty crazy. So so now you're working now, you're, you're, you're on Married with Children, you were on, you played a young John Goodman, which that must yeah. have been cool. I mean, because you, you, it looks like you were working with some heavy hitters, I mean, right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of interesting because I've never been like starstruck, really. That was never a part of it for me. I, I'm, I'm more a fan of of the material than I am of the performers, I guess. And I'm kind of more of a fan of the process than than the uh, than the end result. So it was just fun to play. And and when you play with people that are on that level, in you know quotes, um, they are. They're playing at the top of the game, and so that makes you up your game, and that's a real fun challenge to uh, to approach. Now, then Parker Lewis comes about. Now, yep. Fox was newer at the time. Yeah, I think you were one of the first shows, possibly. Yeah, I think we were like in the second year ever of Fox uh, Fox Network. So, what's um, that like? Like when when the audition? Did they say okay? This is for a regular. Did they tell you like okay? You're if you get this, you're going to be on the as a regular, or was it you shot the pilot first, or how'd that whole develop? They probably did, and I, I, I don't really think I understood what that meant at the time, um, but that was a really lengthy process. It was like six auditions over about three months before I got the part. Uh, I don't know why. You'd have to grill Clyde Phillips um, <laughs> about that. But it was interesting because <clears throat> at the same time I was uh, offered Parker Lewis finally after these multiple auditions, uh, I was also uh, had been auditioning for this film called Prayer of the Roller Boys, and if you want to look that one up, that is a very interesting post-apocalyptic inline skating movie. <laughs> I know, I know the name. I didn't see it, but I know the name. <laughs> I always and I really I had to decide. That was like a big phone call. Uh, the agent's like, "All right, 
they're going to pay you this much money for the movie, and it's got these movie stars in it, and it's Corey Haim or something like that. Or you can do this TV show with these untested people. We don't know anything about them on this new network. We don't know if they're going to stay alive. And I was like, yeah, I'll do the TV show. So it was sort of an arbitrary, weird thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's super exciting to be a part of that. That was basically my college, Parker Lewis Can't Lose. I learned about how the camera works and what's different between acting for the camera as opposed to being on stage. It must have been, uh, yeah, it must have been great for you because as you said, you're, it's, it's a bunch of pretty much unknowns and it's a new network. So you probably had more freedom to really learn stuff. Totally. And, and I think it, it was that way for everybody across the board on that show. Our directors really got to play with the camera. And, uh, there was one very innovative fellow named Brian Spicer who has gone on to direct all kinds of television and, films and he invented a camera mount and our director of photography was trying all kinds of different stuff so it was a really very different from now fun time to be to be in the Hollywood world and, and have all those toys to play with what was it like for you though because the show had a cult following I used to watch it it was, a, it was a good show it was a fun show and it was different you know it was sort of quirky and back then we weren't used to that you know what I mean and it was I liked it now what was it for you though because any shows who have like a following, you know, there's certain people who watch that kind of show. You know, there's certain people who enjoy that show. What's it like for you? Because now you must start to be starting to get recognized. I mean, because one, because you're you're so big, and two, you know, they're not going to confuse you with some other, you know, six foot seven guy. What is it like for for being at a young age and really getting recognized is that does it throw off your how you look at your acting and your craft and life i mean how does it affect you well it's interesting because i had had always had that in my life my father uh uh was a pretty uh famous uh, local celebrity in indianapolis he had, had a really great band in his college years called pure funk uh and then roadmaster and then he was on the radio he was on uh WNAP in Indianapolis and he had like the the late night rock show where he would play like the songs that no one else could play and he had like this kind of radio voice and so I would wander through town and people would be like hey you're Smash's kid so I always had that recognition in my life uh, so when it came from me being on television I don't think it was as weird for me as it might have been for somebody who had not had that as a young person um I'll tell you what was weird, though, uh, thinking back on it, is um, Parker Lewis was from 1990 to 1992, and it was sort of the very early nascent days of the internet, and there were these things called bulletin board systems, and uh, the publicity department of Fox would print out on paper the discussions that people were having <laughs> about the show and, and distribute those amongst the cast, which was really funny. I wonder if anybody kept those. That is so funny how the, I remember that, the, the, the bulletin boards. I remember, God, that's so funny because AOL used to have one. It was like a Letterman yeah. thing, and I would post jokes sometimes. And one time they picked one of mine for the top ten, and I was like, oh, my God. you know. And I'm thinking, it's <laughs> it's a Letterman AOL billboard room. It's crazy. So now, uh, did you know when Parker Lewis went off the air, did you guys see it coming? Probably, yeah. I mean, the, the third season was so different from the first two. I think um, Fox was looking to uh, replicate the success they'd had with Beverly Hills 90210, and so they sort of toned down the surrealism of Park Lewis and tried to make us more of a teen 
uh, romantic comedy kind of thing. And that that was not what our audience was. And so I think people started dissipating. Now, how do you, how does a young actor respond to that? I mean, is it something that you sit there because you must have gotten close with the crew and the and the everyone who works on the show? Is was it something that was just a pain in the ass? <laughs> I mean, when you sit there going, "Oh my god, this sucks." I mean, you know, because you've been you've had you know your career has gone pretty smooth. I mean, you think about it. You know, you got cast in that movie. You come in here, you start getting parts. You get on a series, and then all of a sudden, this is, seems like it was like your first obstacle, like roadblock because it got canceled yeah i i mean i do remember there was a lot of sadness and like the unpacking of it all and the sort of and i remember going back to uh the, the studio lot where we filmed and going on stage and the whole high school had been uh taken out and it was just this big empty stage and that that was actually the moment where i was like wow this is a weird actual ending to something um it was certainly sad. I, I, I feel like I had a pretty good run there right after Parker Lewis, too, a couple of years, 90, 90 to 94 or something like that. Uh, so it wasn't like I was instantly homeless. Right. <laughs> uh, thank goodness. But uh, it was weird. Every ending is, is uh, a little bit difficult, and, you know, you move on. That's we, how you got to get through life. Yeah, and you're, you're constantly changing. I mean, I know it's weird. You, know, you think back when you were on Wings, you played Roy's gay son. Which, there wasn't a lot of, I mean, it wasn't a lot of gay roles back then. It's sort of like, people probably look back, you know, you didn't see a lot of roles. What was that like? I mean, it, was that must have made you feel pretty good, because, you know, you, you're pulling off, play, you know, this role that isn't a big, wasn't a big subject on TV back then. Right. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, like, where I am in the chronology of, of gay characters on TV, but it's an early one, for sure. Um Interestingly enough, because I had grown up in the theater, uh, I was sort of uh, already used to having gay people around, and it was never anything weird to me, and so I had no issue with doing that part or anything. It's how different it was, how how, uh, less tolerant of that people were um, at the time. So, yeah, I mean, pretty cool. I definitely have, I still have a very big uh, bear following. If you will. I can see that. <laughs> bear lovers, I guess. Um, and uh, a, a lady friend of mine keeps threatening to take me out to the, the Palm Springs Bear Festival. Oh, God. Which, uh, might be an interesting. You, 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 you need to go and you need to, to video that and make a documentary. Dude, that's, <laughs> that's not a bad idea. That's, bad. You sit there, you do the histories of the bear, how it started out, and you're like this. You're you're like this icon. I mean, that would be that would be the best. You you got to do that. Just go once with a camera. Shit, put it on YouTube. <laughs> I just might do that actually. So, I'm writing that down. That's yeah, do it, man. That'd be great. I'd watch it. Yeah. So, give me a part. I I can be the uh, I can be the guy who acts as a promoter. I'm telling you, we'll give you for this. I'll come in for this much money. He's the grand master of ceremonies. Do the research on the history of the bear lovers. <laughs> so you're working away. You're this actor. I want to talk later about the movie you directed. That's how we got in touch because James Dumont. You're friends with James. I am. I didn't direct anything Wait. though. Oh, that'll be interesting to talk about. <laughs> oh, I thought he said you directed it. It was a movie he posted. Um, no, I didn't direct it. Oh. We're both in that film. Okay. James Dumont and I cross paths all the time. He's a face that I'm sure your listeners are aware of, and he's in damn near every movie ever made. Oh, he's in yeah. everything. But I want to get to that. But I also I want to talk about ER now. Yeah. Okay. 
So you're sitting there. You come off Parker Lewis, can't lose. There, yep. you go for this. Now, what was the buzz? Like, how did your agents did did they think ER would be? I mean, ER was huge. I mean, the numbers it was sick. Did when you yeah, read for that? Any idea? Yeah. What What did you think when they said, "Hey, it's a hospital"? Show. I mean, how did they? How did? What did your agent tell you you were going to read for? Well, <laughs> first of all, they um, they booked it as a, a movie of the week. They used to make these two-hour TV movies, movie of the week. And uh, I remember John Levy, the casting director, I think there was like 180 roles to cast in, the, in, the, in what became the pilot. Um, and I had read for China Beach a couple of times, uh, which was the show that John Wells was the creator of early on. Uh, and so at some point, that was I think that may have been the first time I was ever offered a role straight up. Uh, which was very kind of John Levy and John Wells to do, um, but we didn't. I didn't know that it was even intended to be a series when we shot the the pilot. I, I thought it was going to be this movie of the week, and it was great fun. Everybody, uh, all those guys were so cool, and you know, I think maybe, oh, I had known of <clears throat> of Anthony Edwards from his uh, career. Um, but the rest of them I didn't really know. Even George Clooney, I, I was not, uh, I did not know. And so it was cool. It was just a bunch of actors doing a really good, a really well-written piece of material, and we had a lot of fun. And again, that was a, an experience where the Steadicam was kind of a new thing uh, for television at that time, and so that was a really amazing thing to witness, the, the work that went into doing those choreographed scenes. Now, you do it, and then now, when do you find out it's going to get picked up to series? And how do you, and would you find out then you're a part of it? I I feel like maybe we we shot it in like April of of a year. I remember we were shooting when Kurt Cobain died because uh, I remember hearing that on the radio in my trailer. And, and so maybe April we were shooting, and then in August maybe I found out that it was uh, uh, so not that long and so, uh, in the grand scheme of things. So you get it, and did you? I mean. Did you have any, I mean, I, you know, it's funny because you think back, I mean, everybody watched that show. Like, I mean, the ratings were out the roof. I mean, yeah. it was it sitting there where you like, okay, this is, I mean, when did it start getting hot? Like, when did you guys really start feeling the buzz and saying, okay, we're on something that's going to run for a long time? Uh, well, it's, it's interesting, actually. Um, so, <laughs> I think we were... Sh- uh, filming maybe the sixth episode ever, and the show was about to air, and there was a lot of hype, and there was a lot of promotion. And I remember saying to Clooney, you know, this show's going to be number one, and he goes, no, you're crazy, there's no way, it's medical dramas, nobody watches, It's it'll do well, but it's not going to be number one. Uh, and we bet $5, and... <laughs> Motherfucker still owes... Oh, can I say that? That's like, right, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> hey, Clooney owes you five bucks. Yeah, oh, that. You know, I, he's been very good to me. Um, he owes me nothing. But um, I, and the first episode, number one, out of the gate, like something like sixteen or eighteen million viewers, which was unheard of at that time, uh, is unheard of now. I mean, there are very few shows that get that kind of audience anymore because there's so much more competition for your eyeballs. And the thing about ER though also was it it wasn't just like that one time it got the numbers; it constantly drew. Yeah, I mean, almost almost the entire fifteen year run of the show, uh, at least the first five years, it was it was number one every every time it aired. Even yeah. some reruns were like the highest rated program of the of the 
week, which did, is how they used to judge things. Didn't Tarantino direct an episode? He did, yeah. Yeah, he was cool. He um, he was demonstrating to an actor, uh, or he was trying to tell an actor how he wanted the scene, how he wanted the action of the scene to happen, and the actor wasn't quite getting it, I guess. And so Tarantino went out into the ambulance bay and came running in through the double doors and, like, slid on the floor like he was sliding into home base. And he was he was an interesting cat, for sure. Now, during that show, got, did you get to go to the Emmy Awards? I never went to the Emmy Awards. I went to the SAG Awards. Uh, I think it was, like, the second year ever of the Screen Actors Guild Awards, which was cool for me because they were honoring Star Trek. And so I got to meet most of the... Uh, Star Trek folk from Next Generation and, and the original series, which was amazing for me. So how long have you, you've always been a big sci-fi fan? I have. I, uh, I mean, I think the first book I remember reading was The Hobbit. My mom and I would read that in bed. And uh, Spider-Man, for sure. And Star Trek and then Star Wars. And, uh, and I've, read, I've read most of the classic sci-fi and fantasy books, if you will. Classic in quotes. Now, you're also, uh, now during this time when you're acting, were you doing any theater? You know, I wasn't. Uh, when I first came out here, um, theater in Los Angeles, I was completely unaware of it. Um, the, I think the next time that I did a play would have been like maybe 98, 7 or 8, 97 or 8. I went to uh, South Carolina huh, and did uh, Of Mice and Men. And that was sort of a, a, a whim, if you will. My uh, The other agent, Tim Stone, uh, is a big theater agent in New York. He uh, got me this gig doing Mice and, Of Mice and Men, and it was really great, and it was nice to be back on stage. And it's such a different experience, uh, especially with the group that you're with. It's like being a part of the circus, you know. Very Some films and television are like that, but it's, it's just a different thing to be on stage and get that energy feedback. Okay, I have a question for you. Um, yeah. I don't know if this is rumor, because I do my research, and you see some stuff on Wikipedia, and you don't know if it's true, but were you a roadie for No Doubt? <laughs> yeah. So, yes, uh, Taj Johnson, who played Lemmer on uh, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, was uh, friends with all the kids from No Doubt. I'm not sure how that happened. But the very first sort of West Coast tour that they did, uh, I think they played six or seven shows, and Taj and I went with them in his Bronco uh, with his girlfriend and another friend, and we we drove up and down California with them for uh, almost two weeks, hauling gear and laughing and having fun and seeing their shows getting in the mosh pit that's, <laughs> that you must have scared the hell out of people in that damn mosh pit uh, like, sometimes sometimes they would they would uh, try to get me you know those were different uh, different kids now <laughs> how many seasons were you on ER so the show did 15 seasons I was I was off and on for 12 of those there were 3 that I didn't do any episodes I think it's like 150 episodes that I did out of like 320 or something like that so how was it that you were off and on? Was it just that they didn't need your character? Or, I mean, how does that work for a, a recurring character? It's, it must be weird that you're in the first one, then you're, they don't, I mean, would you, would they, would you know your schedule or would you know you weren't going to be on one season? Um, well, what happened, what was really great about ER was they gave me the freedom to go do other jobs. And so when I would book a film or I would book a spot on another show or I would book a regular gig on another series, I got to go off and do it. And then it was welcomed back, welcomed back to 
to ER, which was really fantastic and rare and generous of them. Um, and so there were a lot of projects in those years, you know, that opened a lot of doors for me being on ER and uh, certainly wouldn't have the career that I've had without that experience. So it was honestly just their kindness in letting me go and do other stuff. So you get to go and do other things, which is great. Um, and then you end up, you got a series, uh, Men in Trees. Yep. Now, how did that, that was a different role for you, too. I mean, it was something, it was more of a, a lead role, right? Yeah, in a way. I mean, it's sort of my uh, my first uh, <laughs> romantic role where I got to kiss girls on screen. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was a pretty standard thing. I went and auditioned. I, 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 it's, it's funny, this is how the actor mind works sometimes. The night before I was driving out to a concert, like out in Pomona or somewhere, uh, and the agents called at like 7.30, on, and I'm on the road and I'm driving, and they're like, you have this huge series audition tomorrow, 9 a.m. to Santa Monica, you have to be there. And I was like, oh man, I'm not going to get to work on it, it's right at the crack of dawn, I have to drive to Santa Monica. I was really kind of grumpy about it. And so I didn't put in the work that is really required to get these jobs. And I remember pulling up in front of this casting office and just feeling completely unprepared. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go in there and do what I do. And, and somehow, miraculously, I got that job. <laughs> um, I felt like it, I was terrible. And, and, but it's, it's interesting. Those are the jobs I mostly wind up getting are the ones where I feel unprepared and, and not... I always hear that. I always hear people say, you know, they come out of the, the audition thinking they killed it and they're waiting and they're waiting for the callback and it never comes. Then they right. leave the audition and they go, God, God, I hope my agent doesn't hear about this. And then they book the part. That's exactly right. It's, it's so funny. It's such a weird, I don't know if any other career has that aspect. Oh yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you don't see salesmen go in and they give a shitty presentation that no one's buying. You know what I mean? You right. have to exactly. level it. So now when you get this show, you, you played a, a milk, like a rich guy, right? Yeah, he had he had invented post-it notes or something like that, and, and yet decided to open a bar in Alaska. Um, really fun though, fun show, and uh, great people there. And I got to uh, make out with some beautiful women, <laughs> and uh, I met some really uh, uh, Derek Richardson, who uh, played uh, sort of the the puppy dog of that show. was is a really fun guy, and uh, yeah. It's good people. What's it like when you're making out with someone on screen? I mean, I mean, it's so one of those things that you don't get to ask much because I always get I ask you know because you know I have a lot of character actors on my show, and a lot of them have been killed eighty seven times. So I oh, yeah. I always ask you. I want to talk about you getting killed because I'm sure you've been killed, but I always want to ask about that. But the, you never ask about the making out. I mean, is it? I mean, <laughs> do you sit there? It's got to be awkward because you're working with that person still, and it's no. Chemistry. I mean, there's no relationship there. But what is it like? What is, was that the first time he actually had to kiss somebody? I, there had probably been. I think Kubiak kissed somebody on Parker Lewis. But I. But this. But Men in Trees was the first time that it was like I'm in bed with her. And, uh, yeah. Uh, it. It was odd for sure because um, as you may or may not be aware, there were interesting. Um, behind the scenes happenings on that show uh, amongst the cast and so <laughs> that's putting it delicately and uh, so there were um, jealousies happening uh, amongst the partners of the actors involved in all of the characters of that show I'm really circling around the bush here it's alright um, 
it's so the it drama. Was, like my my girlfriend at the time was like, I don't want you making out with these girls on camera, and she. <laughs> Like came in the trailer and confronted the actress and the other actress was like, listen, honey, I don't want your man. I've got my own man. And so it was odd, man. It was definitely weird. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you just have to get on with it and do it. Yeah. Now, what was it like working with Costner? I love Costner. He's, um, he's a real, uh, he's an amazing director, actually. Um, I got to work with him twice. I actually worked on The Postman. Uh, and was cut out uh, because the movie was really long and uh, I really loved that experience and when he called me to say that he had to cut me out of the movie I thought that was really very cool and generous of him and totally unnecessary um, and then and he said to me you know I'll, I'll find something else for you and I was like alright cool thinking you know that's Hollywood stuff it may not happen it probably won't happen and then uh, Open Range came and I still had to audition but uh, but he did cast me in that, and that's you know one of the great experiences of my life, sitting on that hill with Robert Duvall and Costner and Diego Luna. Yeah, I must Dressed be amazing. As a cowboy and pushing a wagon out of the mud. That must be amazing, just because you know you're right. It's like Duvall and Costner. I mean, they're both legends. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you think about Kevin Costner, and you know, people give him shit for Waterworld, but I'm sorry, there hasn't been someone who plays a better sports figure. At least that I've seen. I mean, if you sit there and go, oh, Tin Cup or Field of Dreams or this, the guy's perfect in his roles. And Duval is just such a legend. I mean, as an actor, you must sometimes be sitting there, like, especially scenes like that, going, man, from all the way from Indiana to this. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man. Uh, those are the moments where the reality hits. And I'm like, how did this happen? Um, I remember, uh, you know, Duval seeing him running lines like he was just doing it the same way I do it the same way any actor does it you just run your lines and run your lines and run your lines and then um, it'd be interesting to go back and look at the film and, and watch for this specifically he would play each take three different ways so there was like the happy boss the grumpy boss and the sort of uh, yeah, inscrutable version. Um, and then Costner would piece it together as he wanted. And I, that was a really interesting way of doing things, I thought, uh, just giving three very different uh, performances in each take uh, across the scenes. No. So, you know, and the legendary status is earned there, no question. He's, he's, uh, he's one of the monsters of the business, uh, of the art of acting, honestly. Um, and uh, Costner had so much on his plate and was still able to give a great performance in that film. And uh, it's astonishing to me, the guys who can direct and produce and act and do it all. That's a real, that is a lot of hat juggling. Now, what happened to Men in Trees? It just, it, did it get some ratings or? What happened to Men in Trees? Men in Trees did okay the first season. Uh, we were picked up for a second season, and then there was a writer's strike, and that sort of derailed uh, a lot of television uh, and a lot of films. Uh, I think it was 2007 or 8, um, and the business kind of shut down for three or four months, and so that was the demise of Men in Trees. So how do you rebound from that? I mean, it's one of those things, once again, you know, the show's doing okay, you know, and then back then, you know, shows that's had to do okay like you know it's changed so much i think you can probably notice this too you know you've been on some long-running shows and now it's like a show gets like three weeks and if they don't do anything they're pulled yeah um it's interesting that's uh 
you know, it, it goes back to what we were saying about salesmen, right? It's like, it's kind of the same way. You know, if you're, if you're selling real estate and you go, you know, three months without making a sale, <laughs> the, the boss might look at you and be like, hey, man, you gotta, we can't use you anymore. And that's sort of where it's at. It's become, uh, you know, it's not called show play. It's called show business. And uh, we have to remind ourselves of that a lot. Um, pretty interesting, though. How do you rebound is what you asked. And honestly, I don't think I have yet. <laughs> um, I mean, it's been, I've definitely had a lot of great projects since then. But the business changed drastically after the writer's strike in terms of, Oh gosh, if I'm just being honest in terms of finances, things don't pay the way they used to. And it's funny, you know, everybody, at, we had Alan Aldo was on uh, ER for a long, for a good season. And uh, I remember one of the things that somebody had asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, listen, you can be famous and not be rich. Uh, Alan Aldo, right. years, one of the biggest television shows ever. And, you know, that's a guy saying that, pretty crazy. Well, I've heard that everyone says, you know, the business changes just for the fact that, you know, I've had people who had been guest stars on the show. And now it used to be if you were a guest star, you made a nice little chunk of change. Yep. But now it's like they sit there and they go, OK, we're going to pay you the day rate. And yep. they try to squeeze everything in one day. And I think it's going to hurt the business just for the fact that, you know, you need good actors to have good product. I mean, you know, I don't want to watch a TV show where the people suck. You know what I mean? And when you start, it's true. When they start cutting the budget, then you sit there and you go, okay, like I used to do stand-up comedy. And there was a club, this one guy, he was legendary in Philadelphia for underpaying everybody. And he'd be like, hey, Cooper, can you come out and headline this club? I go, what's it pay? And he'd tell me, I go, I can make that to uh, open for another person. He'd said, oh, then we'll just use this guy. And I'm like, yeah, but when you're using this guy who's not ready, who will work for that, you're hurting the business. And I think that may start coming, I mean, Hollywood, it's weird. I mean, you know, it's it's got to be something. They got to do something where you got to keep you actors getting paid well. Well, you know, the same thousand actors that get paid well are going to keep getting paid well. <laughs> so there's a there's a portion that's that's doing fine. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is across the board, man. I don't think this is relegated just to Hollywood or acting. Uh, just you know, people uh, businesses are not in it for the people; they're in it for the profit and. I understand that, um, and like you said, you don't want to watch acting that sucks. But uh, the audience is changing. You know, there are. I, I had this discussion with a friend of mine. His kid would never put on the TV, but he'll watch YouTube videos all day long on his phone. So uh, there is still an audience for the magic of the cinema and TV that you and I, people of you and I's age, appreciate. Um, but it's dwindling. Well, I want to talk about some of your later work in the movie, and I, I want to talk about the that's bridge. That's depressing. Okay, cool. Now I want to talk about the bridge yeah. because because that was a, that, that's a great show, and you 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 got the, you you got pretty shot up. <laughs> One of many deaths. What? Yeah, I loved working on the bridge, man. That was a really great show with a really great team of people behind it um, who I'm still friends with, and one of my if I'm name dropping one of my great friends, really my brother, is uh, Matthew Lillard, and he had tried to, he was a regular on the show, and he tried to get me on the first season, and there just wasn't an opportunity for it, and then he really pushed for me on the second season, and luckily uh, Elwood Reed, who was the showrunner, 
is a big dude. Uh, he's like six foot six, and uh, he and I met, and he's from Ohio, and I'm from Indiana, and he's a big sci-fi fantasy fan and reader and crime novels, and we really hit it off in music, and we have a lot of shared passions. And so uh, I was able to get that role, and that was the sort of the first time I've been the dick in the suit, uh, which is, a, a you know, that's a future for me on screen, I think, as sort of the, the jerky older dude who suppresses the truth. Right, and, and it's just, yeah, and that's the thing, I mean, and now you know I'm friendly with Alejandro Patino, who was on that show. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, he was like, same thing when, when it was at the end of the second season, a bunch of us were tweeting, like, how the, how the hell can you cancel this show? Now, now your character, what's it like, was that, okay, now I want to talk about the death. Now, how many times have you been killed on screen? And what's Man. the worst? What's the worst? Because you, you got your, you got your ass blown apart in that one house scene. Yes. Yes. On the bridge, I get shot to hell. Um, and that was like four days laying in a sticky pool of blood <laughs> which is miserable uh, it was hot it's like out in the desert of California it was hot and sticky and awful but super fun scene to play um, and some great stunt work in that scene if people go back and watch it, there's like a woman who falls down the stairs and the guy gets shot off his feet and it, there's um, so that's always really cool I love what stunt people do I think that's a really underrated aspect of filmmaking <clears throat> um I have died, I don't know how many times, man. I would say in 75% of the projects I've worked on, I've died. What's your... And probably what's... The, the coolest one is in a film called U-Turn, uh, which is an Oliver Stone film, um, where I'm robbing a grocery, and as I'm getting away with, the, with a giant bag of money, uh, the, the lady behind the grocery counter shoots me with a shotgun. And so that was like a big squib on my chest and back, and... and uh, I remember the, the gentleman who was uh, the explosive effects guy, was uh, he comes up to me and he's like, uh, all right, now, I don't know if you've ever worn one of these, but this is a really big version. It's not going to hurt you too much, but it's going to be fine. And he was missing two fingers, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? <laughs> so that was fun. And now, was that one take? Yes, that was one take. I think three cameras... Uh, and it's really overcranked and, sh- and slow motion, and so it, that's a great death. That's my favorite of mine. Now, how, how did you become good friends with Matthew Lillard? Were you guys auditioning around? Did you meet each other when you first moved out here? or Because you guys have both been working for a long time. No, interestingly enough, we, we didn't meet until, uh, until 2003 when uh, we were both uh, lucky enough to go and make a film in New Zealand called Without a Paddle. Um, and uh, we hit it off, and we both found out that we played Dungeons and Dragons, um, and uh, the rest of the cast was making fun of us. Like uh, Dax Shepard is in that movie, and he would be like, "Oh, Dungeons and Dragons! I'm a wizard. I cast my spell <laughs> on you." And it was—they were merciless. Uh, he and Ethan Suplee, especially, were merciless against Lillard and I. And so. Matthew was like, you should come join my Dungeons and Dragons game. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. And I don't think he really believed me. And he, he likes to tell this story where he says, uh, we got lucky enough to be invited to the premiere of The Return of the King, the third uh, Lord of the Rings film. And it was this massive citywide celebration where they had a parade and we walked in behind the president of New Zealand and uh, dragons and Nazgul on the building rooftops. And, and uh, the end of the movie is coming, and I'm sitting there to Lillard, and he looks over, and I'm 
there's literally tears streaming down my face. Tolkien's such a huge part of my life. And, uh, and he knew at that moment that I was actually going to be welcome at the D&D table. <laughs> that's how we became friends. See, I know it's funny because you always hear about the, uh, the, you know, the celebrity poker tournaments, but now there's a whole celebrity D&D table. Yes, absolutely. It's crazy how big it's gotten. But uh, he and I have been, we've been playing uh, with the same group for, since then, since 2003, so 14 years. Now, are they all Hollywood people? No, well, they are all, uh, they, most of them are writers, actually. Um, and funny enough, we have a, we have, I have multiple campaigns, multiple games of Dungeons and Dragons going, but uh, we play with uh, four of the writers from the bridge. We suckered them into it. Uh, <laughs> and that's really fun. We just did that last weekend. And Lillard Skyped in from Atlanta. Um, but uh, the group that is the old school group um, are friends of his from New York, mostly writers. Uh, yeah. yeah. So now you're also on Bosch. Yes. And that's a really good show. That's one of those shows. You know, it's, it's very... Luckily, you know, we have Amazon Prime. And Netflix, yeah. and they give different shows. But the hard thing is, like, a lot of times Amazon Prime, not a ton of people have it. So people are missing really quality shows. Like, I had I had Sean Ryan, the creator of The Shield, on, and he had done a show. He up the executive produced called Mad Dogs. It was an Amazon. Great show. But the thing about Amazon is a lot of people, they don't, they get confused. Like, someone said, well, why would I want Amazon Prime? I'm like, well, it's, it's like Netflix. It's not that expensive. And you get shipping for free with other stuff so it's a good deal so how did Bosch come about and you know it's like and plus working with Titus Wellifer who's just he works all the time too it must be cool oh man yeah well I'll take those in order um, first of all Amazon Prime is amazing it's um, you know if you like Netflix you'll love Amazon Prime Here's that's my plug for them for the day uh, absolutely fantastic and you're right about the free shipping that makes a giant difference and their library is super extensive and if you've binged everything on Netflix or HBO Amazon Prime is your next baby um, and Bosch is amazing it's a great show uh, Michael Connolly who wrote the novels that the show is based on uh, is on set all the time really present and keeping the tone uh, as close to his vision as, as can be it's run by a guy called Eric Overmeyer, who did a great show on HBO called Treme about New Orleans. Um, and Titus Welliver is uh, an amazing guy. He is a super interesting, fantastic actor, but he's like, he and I sat in that courtroom quoting Apocalypse Now. And he can quote the whole movie verbatim, backwards and forwards, every character, every line. It's kind of bananas, and there's a lot of films like that that he's capable of, uh, and he's an amazing mimic and uh, impersonator, and so uh, just really interesting. I mean, that's one of the great things about working in shows business is you get to meet these people that are beyond what you see on screen. Most of the people in the business are super creative and super interesting. Uh, and what you get on screen is a tiny little fraction. So I've been really lucky and, and grateful to be to see behind the, the curtain a little. See, I always say it too because with my guests, and then you learn so much about them. I mean, like there's so many actors that play musical instruments. You know, it's just right. weird. Like you sit there and, and it's just, you know, and then it's just amazing that there are different sides. And now you've been, you know, through your career, you've 
done a lot of different things. You know, now, you know, you got to play a dick, which, you know, you like, and you got to play, you know, a guy got to make out with girls and, you know, you had the fun Parker Lewis and you had the R. Now, I know you did some of Robot Chicken. Now, now, how did you get, how did you get into the voice work? And that's, that's something you always wanted to do. Like, we you sitting there going, I got to get into that stuff because it just looks fun. Man, I, that's the, that's the most fun. Um, the same story as Lillard, really. I, I'd known Seth Green, um, just through buying toys and comic books, uh, for, in fact, I met Seth Green at the audition for Austin Powers, so that's how long he and I have, have crossed paths. Uh, and then he was in Without a Paddle as well, and we really uh, bonded even more than we already had been. Um, and he showed me the original uh, concept for what became Robot Chicken um, while we were there in New Zealand, and uh, it was super fun, and he was like, if this gets, if we make this into a show, you can do voices. And I was like, I would love to, absolutely. And then again, he uh, kept his promise, and I wound up getting to uh, <clears throat> do a lot of fun voices on that show. And then as it became more successful, he got more brave and approached George Lucas, and we got the blessing of George Lucas to do these Star Wars specials, and that was a dream come true for everybody involved on that show. Uh, you know, I sat next to Mark Hamill while we did the commentary on our episode, and I'm like, that's, that's another one of those moments where I'm like, from Indiana to sitting next to Luke Skywalker, uh, and just in awe of that. Um, and yeah, and because of that, uh, I've gotten to really do a lot of fun voiceover stuff. I've got a bunch of voices on World of Warcraft video game, um, a couple other, uh, I, I got to do the overdubs for this Korean cartoon, which is really fun. Um, and, you know, we had this uh, secret project called Star Wars Detours, which uh, you can still find the trailer and clips of on YouTube. Uh, totally worth looking up, but uh, it, it was an irreverent look at the Star Wars universe uh, from the minds of <laughs> Seth Green and Matthew Sinrich. Uh, and that's super fun. We, I had, I think we did forty episodes. That must be great. Oh man, so fun! And then when Disney bought Lucas, they uh, they they didn't bury the show, but uh, it may see the light of day at some point. But that wasn't the kind of image that they wanted to. Um, they didn't want an irreverent look at Star Wars while they were revamping right. the universe, which I understood. Now, now, what's the movie you're you're in with Jad Dumont? Yeah, so uh, James Dumont, uh, I think he and I are in a few movies together, but the one that sort of drew you and I together is a film called Little Boy that we made in Mexico about four years ago, and is a really fantastic story. I think it's uh, the best script I ever read um, before filming, and it turned out really great, and it was sort of marketed as a faith-based movie, and it's not that at all. It's interesting that that's what happened to it. So I highly recommend, it's on Netflix, I think it's probably on Amazon Prime as well, but Little Boy, um, it's a story of a, of a boy whose father goes off to World War II and the boy believes in, that he can do magic and he you know, does all these, really tries to get his father to come back from the war um, and a lot of interesting things happen that make it seem like he's really doing magic. And it's a really smart script, a really great cast. Emily Watson is in that, uh, and that talk about a treat to play a scene with uh, you know another legend in my mind at any rate. Really great, and James has a great character in that. Uh, and he he James Dumont is a hustler man. He's in so many great movies, and he just really knows how to get those jobs. And 
take advantage and really maximize and be great when he does get them. So I, hats off to him. For yeah, sure. I got to watch. Uh, yeah, I, I always see him. It's so funny. And it's just because uh, now he lives in New Orleans. And so yeah. it's just, it's, oh, it's. I have so much envy. I love New Orleans so much. Now you're also, you're also in Jessica Darling's It List. Yeah, yeah, that's coming up. I'm going to get to see that in the next month or so. That's funny because um, Jane Sibbett was on last week and Eric Lutz was on three weeks ago. Oh, nice. That's fun. Yeah, that's a really fun little project too, actually. Um, really interesting to see what happens with that. Smart smart show, all female filmmakers, producers, and director, um, which I thought was great. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I shot all of my stuff in like three days. And, uh, you know, uh, just having fun. And that's those are the great projects for me where the direct, where you show up, do the work, and the director's like, okay, I've got what I need, now go have fun. Now, now, what what else do you have coming up? Is there, I mean, is it, because, you know, you're, you always work. You're, as I said, there's so many people that are just, you guys always work. And it, you, yeah. you, you look at the resume and you go, geez, there's no holes. You know, whenever I sit there and I go, you know, you have 92 IMDb credits and and they're and they're real credits they're not like people putting background stuff or you know or a YouTube video but I mean so what's what's up next for you what's up yeah real credits uh, I appreciate you glossing over the holes in my Swiss cheese career um, no you didn't have any I, we, you, no there's we just, some old we just didn't hit some of the shows because I got, had to get the Bosch and Bridge and the, and the, the classic ones yeah yeah absolutely um, let's see so, end of the month, there's a film coming out on video that was in theaters for a very brief time in January called The Finest Hours, which is about a true story about a Coast Guard rescue that happened in the 50s. And I hope people will pick it up on video uh, because it's a really great film and uh, the biggest production by far that I've ever worked on. And that stars Chris Pine and Casey Affleck. And some of Casey Affleck's best work, really great in that piece. Um, and then there's a show on Cinemax called Outcast. Uh, that's sort of a supernatural uh, demons take over a small town from the same uh, creator of The Walking Dead that's on Cinemax starting in May uh, and then I just finished a film that James is in as well James Dumont, uh, called Heart Baby and that's a true story about a, a prisoner who was such a good boxer that he was offered freedom uh, if he would join the 1984 Olympic boxing team and uh, he turns it down uh, for a reason that nobody will suspect. Uh, and that's, again, one of the finest scripts I've read and one of the best filming experiences I've had. Uh, Heart Baby, sometime next year, probably will do festivals and all that, hopefully uh, just straight into the theaters. But that's a really special project that uh, that I really hope people get to see. Now, do you think as you're, as you're getting older... And you can play, as you said, you can you can play across the board. You know, you said you know you got to be a dick. You, you know, the the tree show. You played a nice guy. Do you think that you're getting better scripts because people know you have the chops and you have the versatility to play different roles? I mean, there's some people who are just one hit wonders. I mean, you know, that's like any, in any business. But do you think that happens because it seems like a lot of the projects you've recently done, whether it be the bridge, the boss. The two movies, you know, three movies you talk about were just great projects. You think you're getting, it's like a karmic thing coming, karma coming to you, just that you're getting these great scripts? Uh, I, I'd like to think that. that I, you know, it's sort of like, uh, for me, I just kind of go after everything, and I never really know what's going to stick. Um, my agents are pretty good about not sticking me in the box of the big guy role. Um, so, 
it's it's strange, you know. I never know what's going to come next. We don't really get to pick most of the act, most of us actors. Um, so I'm always just looking for something that I like the material uh, or the people involved or the location of the shooting. To be honest with you, um, and uh, I just hope I get to keep doing it. You know, I'm 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 pretty happy on set. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Few minutes left. What were yeah. the uh, what were some of your what was your favorite two locations to shoot? Oh man, I mean, New Zealand and New Orleans, no question. I love New Orleans so much. That is probably the greatest city on earth. Very unique. There's nowhere like that. Definitely the greatest city in America. New Orleans, who that? And then uh, New Zealand is just what you see in the Lord of the Rings films. I mean, it is a different place, and it is a really great, um, really great people there. Great food. Beautiful nature, amazing topography. Uh, they have a law there that you can't build anything with like a hundred within a hundred and fifty yards of the beachfront. So every beachfront is like undeveloped and, and really clean and beautiful. And the rivers. So there's a scene in Without a Paddle where Ethan Sipley and I are fishing with dynamite in this river, and we're standing up in a boat, and the boat's anchored, you know, because it's film magic. And I'm looking down into this river, and it's the water is so clean that it's almost not there. Like we're floating above about five feet above these rocks, this rocky bottom. I just remember thinking there is nowhere in in the continental U.S. where the water is this clean. There's nothing like this here. And in the US. and to think you get paid for that, amazing. I mean, that's it's always great. Like you know, when you guys great. get to go to these great places, it's just it's it's such a it's such a you know the perks of the job. Oh my gosh, that's the perk of the job for me, honestly. You know, I've gotten to travel quite a bit for my work, and uh, I couldn't be more grateful for that aspect. Now, now, are you are you a big social media guy? I guess I am. Yeah, I, I try to. Uh, I, I don't know. Are you on the Twitter? Are you on the Twitter? <laughs> yeah. What's that? Are you on the Twitter? I'm on the Twitter at Abraham Ben Ruby. I'm on the Instagram, which is probably my favorite of the platforms. Uh, and that one, I'm at Jambon Deluxe, which is uh, when I was a DJ at the punk rock bar, I was DJ Fancy Ham. Okay. I, I was sitting I didn't know what it was. I, when I, you know, I, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, Jambon is uh, French for ham. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, this was my fun. Purpose. And uh, I'm glad we could, as I said, you know, I used to record in the studio. And then what happened was the studio uh, closed, so now I Skype. So it, it, it's not the same as face-to-face meeting people, so I don't get to take a nice picture, nice picture of them anymore. But it's, uh, it's always good to have someone come on. So people, go check him out on Twitter. Go to his IMDb page. You know, you got you to gotta go to these people, the guests of mine, because they have such amazing careers. And you IMDb it, and you just see what a body of work and what talents they are. So check them out at Abraham and Ruby at Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Please go to at Cooper Talk on Twitter. Also, um, CooperTalk.net is my website. Over 510 episodes. You can email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. My Instagram is CooperTalk1, as is my words with friends. It's CooperTalk1, so you can check that out. I think it's CooperTalk1, my words with friends. Send me a message for that. And also, don't forget, um, I'm doing comedy uh, June 16th in the Uni Burbank area. I think it's June, June 14th. I'm sorry. It's a Tuesday night at Flappers. It's a $2 Bucky Yuck night. So come on out to that. And please go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Remember when I had that health problem a few years ago? That's going to be four years coming up. That you know, I was in the hospital with a heart problem. I changed my diet. I wrote a cookbook. It's called Stop the Salt. It's got no pictures because that intimidates you guys. 
It's got no major ingredients. I mean, there's ingredients, but no list of major spices. Like I have cumin, but a lot of people don't have cumin in their house. And it's 120 easy recipes. So what you got to do is look it up, buy it from me there. You can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. But if you buy it from me, I make more money and I will even sign it for you. All right, Steve Cooper, thank you very much. So go do that. Check out Abraham Ben Ruby's work on uh, on IMDb. Follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, at CooperTalk. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and you guys have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Be good to each other.